This morning's scripture reading is from Luke 24, 13 to 35. As we approach the uh, end of the Gospel of Luke. This morning we'll read of two men as they are traveling to the city of Emmaus and the wonderful experience they have with the Lord Jesus. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some of them, or some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. When they did not find his body, they came back saying they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken, was it not necessary that the Lord should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them, and when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us? while he was talking with us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures. And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven, and those who were with, him, with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road, and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your scriptures. We thank you for this word here that shows us how we ought to read the scriptures. And that we see that Christ Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises of the Old Testament. That as readers of Genesis, we see and long for an offspring of, we see that Jesus is 
the one to crush the head of the serpent. And as promises are made to Abraham that he will become a great nation and in him all nations will be blessed, we see that that descendant of Abraham is Jesus. And as David has promised a son who will reign on the throne forever, we see that that is Christ Jesus. We pray as the psalmist prays in Psalm 119 that you would open our eyes to your word as the disciples here on the road, as their eyes were opened. We pray that we would seek and savor Jesus Christ in all of our lives. We would repent of our sins and we would seek Jesus knowing that Jesus satisfies more than our sin does. It's in the wonderful name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. So there was a, there's this, an, there's this apologist. I, I don't remember his name at the moment. Um, he would regularly go, or he does regularly go to college campuses, and he speaks to them about matters of faith, of Christianity, of um, the Bible, preaching, teaching, and defending the Christian faith. And there's a few interactions he's had where someone would come to him and they would say, if you give me 100% evidence that Jesus rose from the dead, I will become a Christian. Sounds like a great retort. And there's two specific interactions he's had with this, one with a young man and one with a young woman. And ultimately, it's it's a pretty common claim for skeptics. If you give me complete and total assurance and evidence of the resurrection, I will become a Christian. Now, there's a lot of ways he could respond to this. I mean, the simple answer would be this, but that's not what he does. He takes them through this exercise, as apologists often do. They break down the argument rather than giving the response. And he tells her, you can't live with that sort of certainty. You can't you don't live with that kind of certainty. You're being hypocritical is what he tells her because he says, and he tells her, you don't have 100% certainty that your roommates will not, while you're sleeping, smother you with your pillow. Or that when you go home for winter break, you cannot be certain that your mom is not going to feed you with a bunch of goodies and stuff you up and fatten you so she can eat you. Obviously, these are crazy examples, but he's got a point. But he gives one that's a little bit more realistic. He says, well, if you're going to a pharmacy, if you're getting medicine, do you bring a chemistry kit with you to have 100% certainty that the pharmacist isn't giving you something other than what you're prescribed? Do you actually go go through and test these medications to make sure that it is what you're promised they are? And her response was, well, no, of course not. That's silly. And he uses this as an exercise to show you don't have 100% certainty of anything else in life. Why is this the case? And it's an interesting exercise because ultimately what he's doing is saying there's a certain degree of faith to which you need. And he shows us that we don't have this sort of response in life except for when it comes to faith, except for when it comes to matters of religion. We try to make sure that we have this 100% certainty, but we don't do that with other things in life. And yet the issue is this student's issue, or sorry, The student's issue ultimately is not about getting evidence. And the apologist knows this, which is why he's addressing the ridiculousness of her claim. 
and he's not trying to give her evidence. Even if he gave her evidence, though, it probably would not make a difference. She would find a way to dismiss that evidence. And let me give an example of why. Here's an example of likely how this conversation would incur. If he gives her evidence, well, for one, I kind of already hinted this, the Bible speaks of the resurrection of Jesus, and it places the resurrection of the highest importance. In Acts, Jesus appears to more than 500 people. Continuing that out, the Bible is the best-selling book of all time, The Bible is also the most well-attested document in history. And I've said that before, but what I mean by that is there is more reason for us to believe the Bible and the authenticity and the authority of the Bible than there is any other document. Therefore, we can and should conclude that the Bible is true and that since the Bible is true, we can believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Yet in response to this, the student would probably dismiss this, and this is pretty common that when you say something of the sort, the student would probably say, well, we can't, we can't trust the Bible here because the Bible's conveying things about faith and religion rather than science. The point being in all of this is that often case, when someone asks for 100% evidence and you give them something that gives them 100% evidence, they find a reason to dismiss that 100% evidence. And what she's asking for, though, is more evidence than most people get. And we even mentioned this in Sunday school. I mentioned this in Sunday school, is that the people in the wilderness had bread coming from heaven, feeding them every day, and that wasn't enough for them. They wanted more. And as we saw last week, and as we see in this text and we see in the next There becomes this question of they see miraculous things and yet they don't believe. As we will see in this text this morning, before they realize, before their eyes are open to it being Jesus, they're not not there yet. This man, as far as they know, opens the text of Scripture to them and shows them all the ways that it points to Jesus. And it's not until Jesus breaks the bread that their eyes are opened. And in the previous text, they see an empty tomb and angels declaring what is going on. And yet in verse 11 of 24, we see that the words seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe. And even with reports, they're not quite there yet. And the question becomes, what do they need to believe? There is an empty tomb, but for some, that wasn't enough. There is a reputable report, but for these disciples, it wasn't enough. And yet most Christians do not get, and in many cases do not need, what this young woman would define as 100% evidence. These men in this text, though, they get 100% certainty of Jesus rising from the dead. And as we think about Thomas... In the Gospel of John, he touches Jesus' wounds. He has 100% evidence. And ultimately, that leads them to something. Jesus teaches these men here something remarkable. He doesn't just give them evidence of the resurrection, but he gives them 
lens in how they ought to view Scripture, and that's communicated to us in how we ought to read and understand the Bible. And ultimately, though, it leads us to the trustworthiness of his death and his resurrection, which results in the conclusion that if we believe any portion of Scripture, then it logically leads us to believe in the risen Lord Jesus. And this text shows us in three different manners. We see a picture of Jesus as a teacher, and in his teaching, Jesus shows us that he is the fulfillment And that Jesus then, the teacher who has shown himself as the fulfillment, shows himself as the message. And so Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. The Old Testament points us forward to Jesus. The New Testament points us back to Jesus. And in turn, Jesus becomes the message of the believer. And so these men are walking from Jerusalem, they head to Emmaus, and they're encountered with the risen Lord. But it's unbeknownst to them at this time that that's who it is. And yet in the Gospel of Luke, this is the first instance where the resurrected Jesus is shown, or has revealed himself to someone. We have the instance before this where the tomb is mentioned, and we see the tomb is empty, and the angels tell the women that he's not here, but he is risen. We see that Jesus or that Peter runs to the tomb and that he marvels what occurs, and we see later that Peter has seen the risen Lord, but we don't get that explained. What we have here, though, is these two men seeing Jesus, and that's the first picture we see in Luke. And it's in Luke that we are given this theology lesson with Jesus and these men. We don't know why they're leaving Jerusalem. Um, some have tried to say that they're fleeing or maybe they're leaving or they try to make it a picture of they're leaving the faith or leaving Christianity. And I don't think we should go there quite yet. Maybe that's the case, but what's happening here is this is the end of Passover. Passover is a pilgrimage feast, which meant that all men were required to travel into Jerusalem for this feast. So, given that what we see elsewhere in the Gospels, that not all of Jesus' followers were required to follow him every day, some of them were required to stay in their homes, or Jesus told them, stay in your homes. Some of them had other obligations, so there were certain disciples of Jesus that he said, come, follow me daily. Others, he said, stay here. We think of the man in Mark 5, who who is the demoniac. Um, Jesus says, no, stay here among your people. So it could be the case they're just returning home after this feast. They were there to be disciples of Jesus, to learn from him there, and they're returning home, as they would do at the end of the feast. So we don't really know their motive is really my point in all of this. But it's likely the case that they're merely on their way home. We also don't know who these men are. We're given one of their names, which is Cleopas, which is not the same as Clopas, the wife of who we read last week who was present at the tomb, the man, but next to this text, he's not mentioned. Um, His name is likely short for Cleopatris, which is interesting, but we don't do anything more than that. Uh, The second disciple, though, we know nothing of at all. We just know there's two there. 
Some have tried to speculate that it's Luke himself, but there's no biblical support or historical support for that. But what's more interesting to all of, than all of that isn't who they are or really even where they're going, but it's what happens on their journey. And so it's while they're on their way to Emmaus, they're discussing the events that have just witnessed. They're going back and forth in what they've seen over the past few days and discussing what they've seen. And it's during this that Jesus appears to them. And the first thing we're told, though, is that their eyes are kept from recognizing him. And it's something that we call a divine passive. It's God working in something, but the verb is phrased as a passive verb. Their eyes were kept. Well, who kept them from seeing things? But God. God is the one who kept them from, from seeing who Jesus was. But the next question becomes, okay, well, why did God do this? And the answer is so that this rest of the conversation can play out. So they can learn, so they can understand, and ultimately so we can learn how to read the Bible through this conversation. And yet, this text leads us to what I think is a, a very funny conversation, a very funny interaction in Scripture, because Jesus asks them what they're speaking of, and their response is one of bewilderness. And they say, are you the only person in all of Jerusalem who doesn't know what happened this weekend? And the reason I think that's funny is because, of course, he knows. They don't know that he knows, but he knows better than anybody else what has just happened. Because the crucifixion was a very public event. It's not just something that happened in a tucked away corner. And so, in a sense, their confusion and them being dumbfounded at this is warranted. But yet what they don't know is that Jesus knows what, happens better than, what happened better than they do, which is revealed almost immediately in their response. And yet, in another odd statement, Jesus simply just says, what things, what happened? And then they begin to describe something interesting. It's not just what happened they described, but it's who they think Jesus is is their response. We read that in verses 19 through 24. And they said to him concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. And besides, yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and they did not find his body. They came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. So some of the things they say are good, and some of them are even right. But their understanding of Jesus is ultimately incomplete. From their answer, we see a few things. They identify him as a prophet. And yes, Jesus does indeed fulfill the role of a prophet. But Jesus is not merely a prophet. And we'll get to that in a moment, a little bit further. They also state that they hoped that he would be the one to redeem Israel. 
And so the question following that becomes, what do they mean by that? What, what do they think redeem Israel means? Because unbeknownst to them at this moment, Jesus has indeed accomplished this. But it's likely the case they were expecting Jesus to redeem them from the Roman Empire. They were expecting Jesus to come as a political savior, a political figure who would redeem them from their captivity by Rome. And Jesus does redeem Israel, but Jesus is not merely a political savior. And Jesus is a king, but not in the sense that they were looking for. And they seem to they don't seem to believe that Jesus has actually risen from the dead. They don't really seem to know what's going on at all. Because they state this, but him they did not see. And it's quite similar to the statement that Thomas makes, isn't it? Where Thomas says that unless I see him with my own eyes and touch him, I will not believe. They disbelieve because the women did not see. But now Jesus is in front of their faces and their eyes are kept from recognizing him. And it's quite similar to what, and I already mentioned Thomas, but what does Jesus say to Thomas after Thomas puts his finger in his side and sees his hands and believes and confesses my Lord and my God, which, as I said last week, is an incredible confession by Thomas, by the way. But what does Jesus say to Thomas in response? Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And the same thing with these men and the blessing for those who have not seen and believe. And yet this dilemma doesn't end here. This dilemma that they have a misunderstanding of who Jesus is is common throughout the New Testament. If we think of the book of Colossians, the main dilemma in the book of Colossians is that the church in Colossae has a deficient view of Jesus. These men here are similar. Though think they might get a little bit more of a pass in the church of Colossae because they're right there living it in the moment. But both this interaction and the message in the church of, to the church of Colossae is that we must understand that we need to know right things about Jesus. God has revealed himself to us in his word and in his son, and knowing certain things about Jesus is not enough. Knowing Jesus means knowing accurate things and biblical things about him. An example of this is it's not just enough to know that Jesus is a good teacher. He is a good teacher. Absolutely. Amen. But Jesus is more than just a good teacher. Because if Jesus is a good teacher who is not risen from the dead, he's not a very good teacher because he said that he rose from the dead. So it's also necessary that Jesus is exactly who he said he is, that he is God, that he is risen, that he died and rose again. As he shows them, these things are the case. And that's what Jesus does in his response. He corrects them and he teaches them and he shows them how they ought to understand him in relation to the entire Old Testament. So Jesus proceeds to correct them and give them a fuller understanding of who he is. And he gives them really a master class in theology. I know I titled it Theology 101, but it's really beyond that. It's 
Jesus gives them an understanding of how to see and interpret every single book of the Old Testament. And what Jesus says to them is very similar to what the angels say to the women when they arrive at the tomb in verse 7. In verse 7 we read, or in verse 6 and 7, He is not here, but He is risen. Remember how He told you while He was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified on the third day, and rise. And it's also quite similar to what, the Jesus, what, to what Jesus will tell of the disciples next week when He says in verse 44, Then He said to them, These are My words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me and the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should fulfill or should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. So Jesus' message in these three different instances are really quite the same. I mean, here in Jesus in 25 says, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? The crux of Jesus' teaching is that the Christ had to suffer and enter into his glory. Jesus connects his suffering and his glory and I've said this before, but this is a very clear connection, a demonstration of the fact that Jesus' cross suffer, and suffering serve as a coronation. That Jesus is demonstrated as King of Kings and the promised King and Son of David through his suffering and his crucifixion. And though it was tragic and though Jesus suffered, it was not happenstance nor a surprise. It wasn't just all things coming together, but it was the Lord working and stitching all of these things together for the redemption of his people and the glorification of his son. And Jesus, in his response, asks them a rhetorical question, was it not necessary? Yet in that teaching, he shows them that it indeed was necessary that the Christ would suffer. And thus Jesus opens the scriptures and shows them all the scriptures concerning himself. He begins with Moses. So he begins with Genesis, with Exodus, with Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and through all the prophets, all of the writings of scripture. And it's Luke's way of saying that Jesus had shown them how the entirety of the Old Testament was saying It was Luke's way of showing that the entirety of the Old Testament points us to Jesus. And Jesus is the offspring that's promised in Genesis 3.15 who would come from the woman but crush the head of the serpent. The fulfillment of the offspring that's promised to Abraham in whom all nations of the world would be blessed. Jesus is the true and better Passover lamb. The one who fully keeps the law and fully demonstrates what it means to be holy. The one who perfectly loves his neighbor. John 3 shows us that Jesus is the fulfillment of the bronze snake in the wilderness from, Romans, or from Numbers 21. 
and that those who look upon the man raised upon the tree will be saved as those who looked upon the bronze serpent were cured from the plague. And something that's interesting is they mentioned they, they thought that Jesus would be, or he was a prophet. They say that Jesus was a prophet. But in Deuteronomy 18, we read that Moses speaks of a, pro, of a prophet that would come, that would be better than himself. A prophet better than Moses. And that's who Jesus is. And Hebrews makes that very clear. And even in Deuteronomy 17, a text we don't talk about quite as much as we do Deuteronomy 18, Deuteronomy 17 gives them the prescription of what a king should look like. Even before they know they're going to have a king, they're given laws for a king. And Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of that king. And they promised offspring of David from 2 Samuel 7. The king whose throne will never end, whose kingdom will never end. And a few months ago, when we were looking at the book of Leviticus, I started the very first session with the question of, where is Jesus in the book of Leviticus? And it's a question we often have. We come to our reading plans, we come to the book of Leviticus and wonder, what on earth do we do with all of these laws? Where is the gospel in Leviticus? Where is Jesus in Leviticus? And the response that I made to that was on every page, because Jesus is the one who is perfectly holy. The, the, the theme of the book of Leviticus is what is holiness? It's be holy as the Lord your God is holy. And Jesus is God who is taken on flesh and lives among sinful people and yet exhibits perfect holiness. The entirety of Leviticus shows us that we are separated from God and that sacrifice is required to make us holy again and how God's people ought to live holy lives. And that's what Jesus does. Jesus comes and lives the holy lives that we should have lived. But then he himself becomes that perfect sacrifice that Leviticus shows us is necessary, that sin requires death. And Jesus likely didn't have time to explain every single text. But maybe he did. He is God. He's capable of doing things of that nature. It was only a 6.7 mile walk, which is translated from stadia. But he likely drew them to texts like Psalm 2, kiss the son lest he be angry. Or Psalm 22, which he quotes from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Or Isaiah 53, the text of the suffering servant. These are exactly the sort of text that Jesus would be drawing the two disciples to. And to some degree, we can easily wish to be a fly on the wall. As I'm sure it was a fascinating conversation, but we should be confident in knowing that the scriptures that we have are sufficient to show us how Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these texts. And we should be confident in knowing that what we have is exactly what we need. But yet also, if we think about it, if we were blessed to have been part of this conversation, then we would have been just as foolish as these men are here. 
it's easy to try to read ourselves into the text and see the disciples in here or in other places as being foolish and think, I would have done this better, but you likely would not have. And yet we are blessed to have the completed canon of Scripture that shows us these things. And the book of Hebrews explains them and plays them out really well in how Jesus is that prophet promised by Moses, who's the priest greater than Aaron and the king that David was promised would come. And yet what we have in the Scriptures, what the Holy Spirit has inspired, is exactly what we need. We don't need extra evidence or extra lectures or extra revelation. What we have is sufficient for us. But with what Luke records Jesus saying here, we're given a hermeneutic or a teaching for how we ought to understand the Bible and see Jesus as a fulfillment of all the promises of Scripture. And maybe this goes without saying, but the Bible is not primarily about you. If you read a story like David and Goliath and immediately jump to how you can overcome the giants and Goliaths in your life and how you're David, then you're reading the text wrong. There certainly are aspects of Scripture that we can and should apply to ourselves, but we should be careful that we do not read the Bible as if every word points to us. That's not the case. That is the wrong way to read the Bible. And there are plenty of teachers out there who will seek to do that. Generally speaking, their ministries are primarily on TV. Because the Bible is not fundamentally about you or me. But the Bible is fundamentally about Christ. It's fundamentally about Jesus of Nazareth and how he has maintained his divinity and become a man and died to bring redemption to his people. Salvation from their sins that separate them from their God. The Bible should regularly be reminding you of your need for Christ and for the glory of God. But yet the disciples did not believe what they were hearing or seeing until their eyes were opened. And upon their eyes being opened, they immediately head back to Jerusalem to report the good news. And the message they went back to report was twofold. Keep in mind that while this text certainly opens our eyes to Jesus as a fulfillment of all Scripture, it's not the only thing that's going on here. They're given the key to understanding the Scriptures, but let's not forget that this is the first instance of the risen Lord in the book of Luke. They run back to Jerusalem and they communicate through two things. That Jesus is alive and that Jesus is indeed the Messiah that we've been longing for. They return to Jerusalem to confirm the stories of the women and they affirm that Peter has indeed seen the risen Christ. And as soon as they realize what has happened though, take note of this. When Jesus breaks the bread and their eyes are opened, in verse 30, they recognizing him, they vanished from their sight, and they said to each other, did our hearts not burn within them while he talked with us on the road? Then verse 33, and they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. That same hour. They immediately head back to Jerusalem. 
You tell others what happened. And let's take a moment to consider this. Let me kind of put it in maybe a little bit better understanding. Keep in mind they're walking. And so it's about seven miles, 6.7 miles. So about here to Miami walking, not a terrible walk, about maybe two and a half, three hours is what's been estimated for them, assuming a walking pace and not running. Um, And it's interesting, it's not a terrible walk, but if we consider that, you know, I feel inconvenienced when I arrive here on a Tuesday and I forgot my cup of coffee at home and I have to turn around and go back, and that's only a mile, and I'm in a car, and how easy it is for us to feel inconvenienced to something of that degree. And yet for them, I imagine, they see this and joyously return to Jerusalem to declare the good news. And even when they're ready, if you look at verse 9, they're ready to call it, or verse 29, they're ready to call it a night. They say to Jesus, stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. They've eaten dinner, and it was something about the way that Jesus broke the bread that made him known. It's interesting, though, that what we first think of when we think of breaking bread would be the Lord's Supper, and rightfully so. But that's not the only time that Jesus breaks bread, and especially not in the Gospel of Luke. When we consider the feeding of the 5,000, in Luke 9, Jesus does the same thing. He, break, he prays a blessing over the bread, breaks it, and distributes it. Same thing happening here. We've got these three instances of Jesus blessing bread, breaking it, and handing it to them. So there's some debate over whether or not these disciples would have been at the Lord's Supper. It's not really necessary for us to accomplish or solve that today. Because ultimately, what we see is whether they were or not, there was another instance, and likely more than what's recorded, where Jesus breaks bread and distributes it. And it's the manner in which he breaks this bread that makes him note. But then in Acts 2, in verse 42, we read that the apostles, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the following, and, sorry, and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. So the early church carried on this idea of breaking bread. They maintained the same sort of thing that Jesus did here and at the Lord's Supper and the feeding of the 5,000. So on the one hand, food was very important to them, but also that this breaking of bread carried on to the early disciples. And yet, consider, after seeing this, after the bread is broken, they're heading back almost seven miles in the dark of night to declare the wonderful news they've just seen. And yet, consider how often we make silly excuses for not sharing the gospel with others. For one, it shows the importance of the news, but it also shows their value in the news. That Most certainly they were overjoyed that they had seen the risen Christ before their eyes and that he had taught them how to understand and read the scriptures. And they'd even seemed to sort of understand this ahead of time without really getting it. They said, did our hearts not burn with us on the way? And the message they return to tell the eleven is Jesus. The message they proclaim is Jesus. Upon their eyes being opened to the good news that Jesus suffered to bring redemption 
and rose again on the third day, the first thing they do is to make haste to tell someone else. And this continues throughout the early church. And it's even uh, it defines Paul's message to the church in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians 2.2, he writes, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Their eyes were kept from recognizing Jesus. It's in addition to that that they did not fully understand how to connect all the dots and how to point them all back to Jesus. So our eyes need to be opened to the Scriptures. And it's not a foreign concept. This isn't the first time we see their eyes were closed. As I pray quite regularly in Psalm 119, verse 18, the psalmist writes, Open my eyes that I may behold the wondrous things out of your law. And Psalm 119, 27, Make me understand the way of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous words. In Psalm 119, 33 and 34, Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Psalm 119, the longest psalm, the longest text in the entirety of Scripture, which I've often described as a love letter to the law of the Lord, repeats several times that the reader, the disciple, is dependent upon God opening their eyes so that they might understand God's word. Without the aid and guidance of the Holy Spirit, we also have closed eyes to the truth of Scripture. When you come to the text, when you do your morning devotions, first pray that the Lord open your eyes and give you wisdom. But as we look at these men and we see their zeal, we have to wonder, have we lost our zeal for sharing the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins with others. Do you have the same zeal for the gospel that these men do? Do you still have the same joy as when you first heard? When your eyes were first opened to the good news of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and what that means for your salvation? Or have we become like the Israelites in the wilderness who see manna on the ground and say this again, they become complacent and bored. I'm not saying we need to take a seven-mile hike in the dark through unsafe circumstances to share the gospel. I mean, maybe, but even just sharing the gospel with your loved ones or your neighbors, is that an inconvenience or is that something you delight and hope and pray that you have opportunities to do? And from our text today, we see two disciples go back from discussing, or go from discussing back and forth what they just witnessed to see that they probably have no idea what to think in the midst of all of this. They are shown the necessity of Jesus' suffering and its connection to his glory. And in the midst of that, everything is explained to them. They're given a clear understanding of how to read the Bible And they see that it all points to Jesus. And we are blessed to have that in our scriptures as well. And it changes everything for them. Their eyes are opened and it leads them to respond appropriately, which is that they are on mission and their mission is to share the good news with others. 
And we get to read this incredible account, and thus our eyes are also opened to how we should understand the Scriptures. And our mission is defined by their response. We hear of the resurrection of Jesus, that he died to save sinners, and then rose on the third day. We see them believe and immediately go to tell others. What a wonderful example and picture for us today, and we should do likewise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would open our eyes to the wonderful things contained in your word, that you would give us understanding and wisdom, that we might see your word and apply your word, and that your word would convict us of sin. We confess that Sometimes we find ourselves complacent and comfortable, and it leads us to not desire to tell others the good news of Jesus. And I pray that you would restore our fervor for the gospel. If we've lost it, we pray that you would restore our excitement to share the good news with others, that we might seek to invite others into the wonderful eternity that we have found and the belief that your son Jesus lived a sinless life that we should have lived and died the death that we should have died. And rising again, he has brought those who believe in him the opportunity to spend eternity with you. We confess that we take the good news for granted, and that we often value our own comfort more and we value the eternal destiny of our neighbors. I pray that we would repent of any degree of complacency we would have, any degree of comfort we would value more than we value the salvation of sinners. Lead us to love those who you love. Lead us to hate sin and laziness and complacency in the ways that you do. Open our eyes to your word and give us wisdom to understand your scriptures. We thank you that salvation is found in your son, Jesus, and he is the only name under heaven by which we might be saved. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.